Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be learning breathing mindfulness meditation. This is part one of a four-part series where I'll be introducing you to breathing mindfulness meditation and then diving into some depths of how to actually do breathing mindfulness meditation. And today we should be doing breathing mindfulness meditation together as a group and we'll incorporate that in as we go forward in the next four classes. The content that I'm going to be sharing with you is part of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. It's in chapter 11 of this book, and it's part of our group learning program where we meet here on Sundays and Wednesdays in order to help you learn and practice the path to enlightenment. A practitioner wouldn't be able to actually attain enlightenment without breathing mindfulness meditation. So it's really good that you learn this and really develop it and perfecting it more and more as you go. It's just like everything else on this path. You learn it and then you just work at it each day to get better and better. You're not going to be an expert from the very beginning, probably even the first three months, six months, or a year. You really need to work at it. And I can say for a really long period of time, I didn't even know really how to do meditation until I finally came into the Buddhist teachings and saw exactly how he was teaching breathing mindfulness meditation and then decided to devote some time and attention to learning how to do this and seeing how it actually transforms the mind. Because when you look at the Buddhist teachings in his original source, the Pali Canon, you'll see that he prioritizes this form of meditation above all other forms of meditation. And one of the beauties about this path to enlightenment is this type of meditation actually addresses the core and central problem of why the mind experiences discontentedness. You won't need to run out and learn 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 different meditations, but instead, as we talk in this program and I help you understand what's called the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots, you'll see that there's only two primary meditations that are really used in order to transform the mind. I'm going to be introducing you to all four types of meditations that were taught as part of the path to enlightenment, but we're only going to do one of those and really focus in on one of those over the next four sessions. And then next month in October, we're going to be focusing on the second one. So over the course of the next two months, I'm going to help you build up your practice where you'll be able to understand the two primary styles of meditation that the Buddha taught, and you'll understand why they're actually done and what you're actually should be accomplishing as part of this practice. And I'll be helping you develop that practice 
each Wednesday as we meet. And then the idea is, is that between classes, you do meditation on your own so that when you come to class, as you have questions, I'll be able to help you with those questions. And as you devote time, effort, energy to learning and practicing, you'll be able to see the areas that you're understanding that are working really well for you. And you'll see areas that maybe you need help or you need guidance or clarification. And that's what these classes are for. That's what the Facebook group's for. That's what you can private message me about or ask for some personal guidance through scheduling an appointment. So welcome to all of you, whether you're on Facebook, YouTube, Zoom, Twitch, Periscope, on our podcast, wherever you're taking in this content, I would like to just welcome you to our class because this is just so important for your practice to develop this mind to be enlightened or experience this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy. As we go today, just like with all of our classes, we're going to have times where you can ask questions. All you need to do if you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom is put those into the comment section. Our moderator, James, will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand, ask any questions or any follow-up questions directly in order to get help as we progress in our class. So since we're talking here on Wednesday, let's go ahead and kind of just recap a brief little bit about what we talked about on Sunday related to the Eightfold Path so that you'll understand why we're even talking about breathing mindfulness meditation to begin with. Because what's really important as part of your path to enlightenment, as I've said multiple times, is that you don't believe your teacher, you don't believe the Buddha, but instead you understand why you're doing certain things, what the goal is, what you're working to accomplish. And then as you learn that, you reflect on it and you practice it, you can observe the improvements to the condition of the mind. If you don't know why you're meditating and what you're supposed to be accomplishing, it's really hard to accomplish any kind of goals. So as we talked on Sunday, you remember we talked about the Eightfold Path, specifically right view and right intention. Well, in right view, we talked about the Four Noble Truths. We talked about discontentedness, the cause of discontentedness, the elimination of discontentedness, and the path forward to eliminating discontentedness. This is the whole goal of the Enlightened Path, is that you eliminate all the discontent feelings, all those unwelcomed feelings that the mind experiences where it's sad or angry or frustrated, irritated, bored, lonely, feeling guilty or shameful or fearful, shyness, resentment, jealousy. All of these unwelcomed feelings can be eradicated and eliminated from the mind when you realize what's causing these problems and then you can work to eliminate them. The cause is craving, desire, attachment. This is where the mind is holding on. It's longing with a strong eagerness, wanting the objects of its affection. And if it gets what it wants, then it experiences this conditioned happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. But then that's not satisfying because it's only temporary and it fades. And if the mind doesn't get what it wants or that happiness fades, then it slips into painful feelings like sadness or anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear. 
And then sometimes the mind can experience neither painful nor pleasant feelings like boredom, loneliness, shyness, displeased, unsatisfied feelings. This is all being caused by the mind's own craving, desire, attachment. This is the mental longing with a strong eagerness where the mind is lurching or yearning for something, chasing after the objects of its affection and then wanting to hold those really close. So this is the number one problem that the Buddha discovered about the unenlightened mind. And then he followed that second noble truth up, explaining the cause, this longing and holding on, He explained the way to eliminate discontentedness is to eliminate this craving, desire, attachment, this holding on, this clinging. Well, that's where breathing mindfulness meditation comes in and other things as well that you're going to learn as part of this program and as part of this path to enlightenment. But here today, we're going to be learning breathing mindfulness meditation. And what breathing mindfulness meditation is doing is it's training the mind to focus on the breath bring the mind into the present moment. But as someone is meditating, the mind's going to want to go to the past. That's the longing or the yearning. So what we do is we train the mind to come back to the present moment. We cut that off and let it go and come back to the present moment. Or the mind's going to go to the future and we cut that off and bring it back. Or you're going to have thoughts and ideas, perceptions, certain decisions that the mind wants to have. All of these things start popping into the mind during meditation. And when you observe that, having mindfulness or awareness of mind, you observe that, you cut it off and let it go and bring the mind back to the breath. I'm going to explain this in a lot of detail today, but I'm just doing this as kind of like an overview before we even start today's class so that you see exactly how breathing mindfulness meditation is connected to right view. Meditation itself is actually part of the mental discipline of the Eightfold Path. We're going to be covering this in a few Sundays from now, where we're going to be talking about right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. But what that's building up to is it's all being based on understanding right view, that the mind is causing its own discontentedness because of the craving, desire, attachment. And in meditation, we're training the mind to let go to no longer long and yearn and chase after all these thoughts and ideas and feelings. As long as you're alive, as long as this body and mind is in existence, there's going to be thoughts, there's going to be ideas, there's going to be these things. That's what happens and we need those in life. But in meditation, what we're doing is we're training the mind to let those things go and focus on the breath. We make it easier and easier to let go and let go and let go. So this is just kind of an overview before we get into too much depth of today. And right intention, remember that first part of right intention is the intention of practicing renunciation or relinquishment, letting go. This is where breathing mindfulness meditation, generosity, and other things that we practice as part of this path helps the mind to set this intention of letting go or renunciation or relinquishment. So everything we do in this path is being built as part of a life practice, as part of this eightfold path, the path to enlightenment, in order to eliminate discontentedness. 
And when you see these connections, you can see how well thought out the Buddha's path to enlightenment truly is because he didn't just kind of invent this on the back of a napkin. He really worked for six years in order to develop this path. And once he had developed it and he observed the condition of his mind was peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, he knew that he had discovered the truth and then he spent the rest of his life sharing that with others. But rather than believe me that breathing mindfulness meditation is so important and is part of this path to enlightenment, what I'd like to do next is share some of the Buddha's words with you around meditation. There's a whole book as part of this book series that is devoted to meditation. In this particular first volume, I devoted an entire chapter to it. And it's probably the longest chapter in the entire book. And then in this book series of 13 books, there's one book that's devoted 100% to meditation itself. But here's a few words that the Buddha spoke during his lifetime to help you understand a bit about how important meditation is. One of his more famous lines that he shared was, meditate monks, do not be complacent lest you will regret it later. This is my instruction to you. So during his lifetime, he taught meditation as part of his path, but he was encouraging people and guiding people not to be complacent because when the mind becomes discontent later, you'll kind of regret that you weren't dedicated and diligent enough to practice meditation. So if you have gone long periods of time without meditating, then your mind will slowly kind of slip away and become more and more discontent. There was a period of time in my life where I didn't meditate for about two and a half, three years. And that was one of the hardest times in my life. And it really motivated me to get back in to these teachings and be sure I became really dedicated and diligent. So you'll observe that when you're complacent in your meditation practice, you will regret it later when the sadness and the anger and the frustration and boredom and loneliness and all these other feelings come into the mind. And this could potentially be something that he was alluding to with regards to the cycle of rebirth. But remember, the Buddha never used fear, guilt, and shame in order to convince people to practice his teachings because one of his number one goals is to eliminate fear, guilt, and shame. So he wouldn't have used that to motivate people. This was just kind of his encouragement of saying, you know, it's really important that you meditate and don't allow the mind to become complacent. Another quote that I really like from the Pali Canon, and there's several in there related to meditation, like I mentioned, but this particular one is, a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. So if you think about the mind as being the pot, and when the mind becomes discontent, that's when the mind is being tipped over. So when the mind becomes angered or frustrated or irritated or guilt or shame or boredom, loneliness, any of those discontent feelings, even extreme excitement and elation and all of these things where the mind can kind of lose control, this is the mind being tipped over. This is the pot being tipped over. So it's really easy to tip over the pot if it doesn't have a stand. The stand is your meditation practice. So if you have just kind of a narrow dowel rod as a stand, it's very difficult to balance the pot on top of that. But as you develop your practice more and more, 
you get a solid month or two or three or six or a whole year or three years of meditating under your belt. And sure, you're going to, you know, miss a few days here and there along the way, but you stay dedicated to this long-term consistent approach to meditating in the way that I'm going to show you, your stand becomes wider and wider and wider. So the pot becomes more and more stable. If you've just recently started meditating or you haven't been meditating in the way that the Buddha taught, then your pot is very easy to tip over. But what this class and this series of classes is about is helping you to build that stand so it becomes wider and wider and it becomes more and more difficult to tip over this pot. Here's a little teaching from the Buddha where he describes how important breathing mindfulness meditation is. And he says this as part of multiple things that he was sharing. And I've just kind of extrapolated this out. Here he says, monks, there is one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge or experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. What is that one thing? Mindfulness of breathing. This is what I call breathing mindfulness meditation. This is that one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to liberation, to peace, to direct knowledge or experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So here the Buddha is explaining how there's this one important thing now, you can't meditate your way to enlightenment. The path to enlightenment has eight steps, and meditation is just one part of that. But you also wouldn't be able to attain enlightenment without meditation either. So the Buddha is not saying here, just meditate and that's all you need to do. But he's explaining how important and how high of a priority breathing mindfulness meditation is to your practice to attain enlightenment. So when he's saying here, you know, what's that one thing when developed and cultivated that leads exclusively to liberation? Liberation is the freedom of the mind. That's what liberation means is freedom. So what the Buddha is talking about here is freedom of the mind, where it's no longer polluted and defiled, right? He talks about freedom from strong feelings. Those strong feelings are discontentedness, right? Those pleasant feelings that are conditioned on some impermanent condition, those painful feelings and those feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant, those strong feelings that the mind gets enraged or angry. This is what will help to eliminate those strong feelings to elimination. Elimination of discontentedness is what he's talking about. Elimination of the pollution of the mind to elimination of craving, desire, attachment. There's other teachings where he explains this a lot more elaborately. And then he also says here that it leads to peace, this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind that I'm talking about that has joy. That's what breathing mindfulness meditation leads to. Direct knowledge or experience. This is where the teachings of the Buddha aren't to be believed. You learn with me today in class. You reflect on the things that we've talked about and discussed, but then you put it into practice and see for yourself through your own experience, through your own direct knowledge, 
you practice the teachings, you practice this meditation the way that I teach it. And then you see for yourself that the discontentedness slowly diminishes. And then of course he says, breathing mindfulness meditation leads to enlightenment, to nibbana, which are exactly the same things. So here you don't have to believe me that the Buddha taught meditation. It's pretty wide known that the Buddha taught meditation. It's pretty widely known that he taught meditation. But I'm not interested in you believing me about anything. So as we go in this program, I'm going to show you teachings from the Buddha where he taught certain things and using his own words. And I do that in this book, the first volume, which is used for this group learning program. And then the whole entire book series is devoted to sharing the words of the Buddha so you can have confidence to see exactly what he shared revealing the hidden, no secrets here. And then when you see what he taught, then you can actually go out and practice it and see the results for yourself. So here you don't have to believe me, you don't have to believe the Buddha, you just learn and you practice, see the truth for yourself that the condition of the mind gradually improves. Let's just talk about some meditation basics and then we'll take some questions after this. Just to get us on the same page of talking about meditation and having this discussion to build up your practice, let's just be sure we have a common understanding of what we mean when I say meditation. Because all of these different words mean different things to different people. And one of the things that I take great care to do is make sure that as I'm teaching that you understand how I'm using these words so that there's lots of clarity in the way that you learn and practice these teachings and we can eliminate any kind of confusion. So just starting from the basics, you know, let's define meditation. Meditation is a technique to actively train the mind during dedicated, independent, purposeful training sessions to eliminate and or cultivate various qualities of mind in the positions of seated, lying, standing, or walking, okay? So this is a dedicated, independent, purposeful training session where we're eliminating certain unwholesome qualities from the mind and we are cultivating certain wholesome qualities into the mind. Today, as we talk about the different types of meditation, I'm going to show you with all the different meditations that I share exactly what we're eliminating from the mind and exactly what we're cultivating. That's really important that you see that so that you understand the why and then the how of how to actually do it becomes more vibrant and becomes more lively for you that you know exactly what you're working to do. Just like I share with you a definition to have a common understanding of what meditation is, let's be sure we understand what meditation isn't as well because that's just as important. Meditation is not gardening. It's not exercise. It's not walking the dog. It's not driving the car on a nice country drive. Now, these things are very relaxing. They can be very calming. And they can be very beneficial for your practice to create a balanced lifestyle, right? Having certain hobbies like gardening or exercising or sewing or quilting or ice skating or playing with your children, having conversations with friends. All of these things are very healthy for the mind to keep it in balance. But this isn't an active, dedicated, 
purposeful training session where we're training the mind to eliminate certain unwholesome qualities and cultivate certain wholesome qualities. So be sure that even though in common language and in certain circles and conversations, someone might say, oh, let me go walk the dog and do some meditation, or let me go for a drive and do some meditation, or I'm going to go for a run and do some meditation. Be sure that you understand, even though other people will use whatever vocabulary they would like to use, and that's their choice. Be sure you understand what meditation is, because if you thought that the Buddha taught meditation and meditating was just going out for a run well when do you ever do breathing mindfulness meditation that most important thing that the buddha talked about that one thing that leads to enlightenment to nibbana to peace well if all we do is we run or we drive the car or we garden and we're not doing what the buddha actually taught then we're not going to be able to experience the results so be sure that you understand that Meditation is this active training session where we're applying dedication to train the mind through purposeful training sessions. As you develop your meditation practice, it's important that you have a meditation teacher. Nowadays, meditation books and videos and podcasts, they're everywhere. They're around the world in lots of different places. And we've become very much a self-service society. We're taught, particularly in some Western cultures, to be very independent. And independence is actually very good in a lot of situations. But you also need guidance in order to learn how to meditate and then have a person to get clarity and focus on your practice when you need help. If you weren't receiving guidance from a teacher during meditation and as you develop your practice, it can actually run into a whole lot of problems. I've been contacted by various students over the years that have tried to learn to meditate on their own for a year or two years or so using YouTube videos or books or different podcasts, and they didn't have any contact with any teacher whatsoever. And during this time, their mind really eroded it degraded the quality of their mind. One specific situation that I can share with you is there's this doctor that was a doctor, a treating physician, and he was working on meditation for himself. And now he's worked his mind into such a condition that he actually can't work anymore. He's utterly depressed. He has obsessive compulsive disorder where his mind is just rapidly thinking about the same things over and over and over again. His mind and the quality of his mind is significantly degraded. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with meditation. It's not meditation that did that. It's that he just didn't understand because of a lack of wisdom. He didn't understand that he needed a teacher and that he shouldn't be off meditating for two years all by himself without any guidance because as things start to unravel in the mind and you need help you don't have somebody there to help you so while i put youtube videos and podcasts and things like this and books everywhere for people to learn you'll constantly see me sharing in all these different resources about how important a teacher is and then once you learn then you go out and do your independent work That's where you become independent and you work on your own practice. But then at least you have a relationship with somebody that you can send an email, a message, 
get some private guidance. You can reach out to a teacher, let them know what you're experiencing. Because as the mind unravels, it can be kind of messy sometimes. It's kind of like all these years of your life, you've been sweeping all the dust under the carpet. And now you've got this big pile of dust under the carpet. And now that you start meditating in you, it's like pulling back the carpet and all the dust starts flying everywhere. It's like the mind can kind of unravel on itself. So you'd like to have somebody that you can reach out to, share with them what your experiences are, either through classes like this or other means that teachers make available to them. And even if what you get back from your teacher is, that's completely normal. Just keep going, it'll pass. Even if that's what you get, that can be very comforting in a situation where you're facing something you've never faced before. And you can't ask questions to a YouTube video or to a book. So this is why any resources that you use, it's important that you have ongoing contact with a teacher so that you can reach out and get help as you need help. Another basic thing to keep in mind is that there's four positions to meditate in. Seated position is definitely the most popular, but there's also lying, standing, and walking. Now, while there's these four different positions, each individual position, there's flexibility. This practice to train the mind to enlightenment is not about training the body to get into the perfect full lotus position. This is something that some people can do. It's very rare, but it's not required. You don't need to get the body contorted into all these different positions in order to train the mind. You can do meditation seated on the floor in full lotus if somebody's able to do that. I don't do that and I don't know too many people that can. But you can also do it on the floor with cushions under your rear with your legs lightly crossed. You can have your legs stacked on top of each other. You can sit in a chair. You can sit in a wheelchair. You can sit on a dining room table chair. There's lots of different ways that somebody can sit. This practice isn't about everybody doing it exactly the same way. What's important and what you hear me share is it's important to get the body comfortable, not being painful and not being lackadaisical and so luxurious that the mind becomes unattentive and unalert and turns off. Instead, as I provide you instruction today, it's going to be to help you get your body comfortable in the middle where then the body is almost like a non-issue. You don't feel any pain, but yet you're not in a luxurious position either. It's just resting comfortably. This way you can get access to the mind. And that's the real goal is to train the mind. And you can do that in the seated position. It's also possible to do it in the lying position, which is kind of like Shavasana if you've ever done yoga or resting pose, which is just essentially laying on your back on the floor. That's what lying pose is. And it can be really helpful in situations where maybe you're in a hospital, you're hooked up to an IV, you can't sit. Maybe you've torqued your leg or torqued your knee or you had a knee surgery or you've had a back surgery or you've had different things that have happened to you medically or you're, you're just aging and you're getting older and maybe it's more comfortable for you to lay on the floor or in a hospital bed or maybe you've just worked a lot and the body is just sore and you can't even imagine sitting in a chair or a cross leg or some other position. So lying meditation can help you but you need to be sure that the mind doesn't 
become unattentive and alert and turn off and go to sleep. This can be a common thing that people face in the lying position. So be sure if you use lying position that you be sure you have some dedicated time where you're actively training the mind in this dedicated, independent, purposeful training session before you allow the mind to doze off or fall asleep. And if it does fall asleep, that's where if you're noticing that you become sleepy during your meditations, that's where standing and walking position can be really helpful. And that's why the Buddha gave us multiple positions, because he understood in permanence that it, you can't just have one position and the body stay in that position all the time. You're going to need multiple positions. So if you're noticing during meditation, you're in the lying position and you're noticing you're starting to drift off to sleep, or if you're in seated position and you're noticing you're drifting off to sleep, or you just can't fathom sitting in one spot, then maybe you stand up in the middle of your session or as a standalone session, you do standing meditation. And you can also do that with walking meditation as well. With standing meditation, you just stand up straight and you can either clasp lightly at the wrist with the hands in front of you, or you can put your hands along the side of the body, or you can put your hands behind the body and lightly clasp the wrist. It doesn't matter if you clasp the right wrist or the left wrist. What you're doing with the body is just making it comfortable. You're not interested in it being painful or being luxurious, but instead just being in the middle and comfortable, like it's a non-issue, almost like the body doesn't even exist during meditation. Walking meditation is a unique style of meditation that requires some guidance and some coaching to actually do this. It can be really, really helpful for an overactive mind, a mind that can't even fathom sitting down because there's too much energy in the mind. Walking meditation can help you with that and kind of get the mind to kind of wind down and release some of the energy in the mind. It can also be really helpful if the mind is falling asleep and the mind is falling asleep. As I mentioned, during seated, lying, or any other position, you can do walking to keep the mind active and attentive. It really helps to bring the mind into the present moment and accomplish the same goals that we're going to be talking about today as part of breathing mindfulness meditation. We don't typically do loving kindness meditation or any of the other forms of meditation in the walking position. It's only breathing mindfulness meditation that is done in the walking position. But all the other meditations that I'm going to introduce you to today can be done in seated, lying, or standing. Let's see what questions you guys have so far. Remember, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom in the comment section, or you can raise your hand electronically and James will call on you to be sure you can get your question or follow-up questions asked during the class. Hi, David. I see that there's the wide range of positions, as you mentioned. So you would say that the purpose of the positions is not so much on the physical body, but arranging the physical body such that the mind can be attentive. Yes, one of the things you'll hear me talk about today is the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. What you would like to do is you'd like to go see the boss, but you've got to go through the employee to get to the boss. You can't just go to the boss. So what you're doing is you're trying to kind of appease the employees. You're not trying to put them in pain because a painful employee, they're not going to take you to go see the boss. But also, if they're too luxurious and too lackadaisical, 
they're not going to take you to go see the boss either. So you'd like to make them comfortable. So this employee, this body, you're looking to make it comfortable, but not luxurious. So that way it will take you to go see the boss. And you're not interested in having the body in pain. So if at any point you feel pain in the hip, the knees, the ankles, or any other part of the body, you can shift the body during meditation, or you can just change position. Because if you're trying to actively train this mind, and all the mind feels is pain, 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 then you're not going to be able to eliminate the unwholesome qualities and cultivate the wholesome qualities that we're working to develop as part of the mind. Because all the mind's experiencing is pain, 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 pain. So during the meditation, what you're looking to do is keep the mind attentive and alert because that's who you want to talk to. You want to talk to the boss while they're attentive and alert. You need to go through this employee in order to get there. So we kind of put the body in seated, lying, standing, or walking to kind of appease the employee so that it'll take us to go see the boss. And that would be why we would not meditate while doing other activities, you would say, such as jogging, because it's all about being attentive to the mind. And when we're doing other activities, it's of course, difficult to be attentive to two things at once, you would say. Exactly. One of the things you'll hear a couple of Sundays from now when we talk about right concentration is the Buddha taught singleness of mind. The mind actually cannot focus on more than one thing at a time. Even though we're often taught to multitask, what actually is happening is the mind is rapidly switching from one task to another, to another to another, but it's only actually doing one thing at a time. You can't talk on the phone, watch TV, and eat a sandwich all at the same time. You're doing one of those things for two or three seconds, five seconds. It's rapidly switching to the other, rapidly switching to the other. But when you're done with all that, you don't feel like you actually did any one of those things very well. So if you were to try to garden and meditate at the same time, you wouldn't actually be able to do that because while you're gardening, you have to focus on digging and using the tools and making sure you're mixing up the soil and digging the holes properly and spacing out your plants and lining things up in a certain way. You can't be focused on the breath and eliminating unwholesome qualities and cultivating wholesome qualities. You're focused on the task of gardening or the task of jogging or walking the dog or something like that. So that's why you need this dedicated time during your day to devote to meditation. And that keeps the mind active and attentive, focused on the goal of what you're working towards, which is eliminating unwholesome qualities and cultivating wholesome qualities. And in that way, that's why you consider meditation a technique to actively train the mind, because we may go into the practicing meditation feeling like this isn't an experience, it's about the experience of meditation or feeling relaxation, but what you're saying is that it's not so much about that, it's about being in this position to train the mind for our time outside of meditation, essentially. Exactly. A lot of times the way meditation is taught nowadays in certain places is taught to kind of calm the mind or to kind of observe the thoughts and kind of label the thoughts and these other things like this. But when you understand what the Buddha actually taught, that there's these three core problems that are causing the mind to 
be trapped in the unenlightened state and not experience enlightenment. When you understand what those three things are, craving, anger, and ignorance, or unknowing of true reality, when you understand those, then you understand that his meditation techniques are designed to actively eliminate those unwholesome qualities. And when you understand the wholesome qualities that he's encouraging and guiding people to cultivate, then you'll understand in meditation that you're actively cultivating these certain qualities because these are the qualities that you need as part of the Eightfold Path in order to train the mind and produce enlightenment. So you need to get rid of certain pollution in the mind and you need to bring in certain wholesome qualities in the mind in order to produce this enlightened mind where it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So you don't actually meditate to create calmness. You actually meditate to get rid of the unwholesome conditions that are creating the uncalmness. And you're meditating to produce the wholesome qualities that will produce the calmness, that will produce the peacefulness. But if you're trying to meditate to produce calmness, well, there's still this ickiness, there's still this clutter, there's still this pollution in the mind. You haven't eliminated anything and cultivated anything. You're just kind of relaxing the mind and just kind of settling the mind and just kind of taking a few breaths in order to relax. And that can be beneficial, but you're not going to see any long-term effects from that. Where you get the long-term effects is you got to get in there, roll up the sleeves and clean out all this unwholesomeness and cultivate the wholesome. We have a follow-up from the previous question from Adrian. But paying attention to the breath while engaged in task is important, right? You don't necessarily have to do that. While you're involved in a task, you're not going to be meditating. You should be focused on the task at hand. You're not trying to mix things here. So in meditation, you're training the mind in a particular way. And then outside of meditation, you're using the benefits of what you've cultivated in your meditation. If I can use an analogy and then come back to this, is if you were planning to be an Olympic athlete, you would go into the gym and you would train the body and you would train certain muscles and you would lift weights or you would do various things in order to train to become an elite athlete. And then with that training, you would go off and compete. But when you're competing in your sport, you're not lifting weights necessarily. Like if you were a gymnast, right? If you were doing gym or track and field, you might just be a sprinter doing a hundred yard dash. Well, that's what you do during competition is you do your hundred yard dash. But in training, you're pumping iron to make your legs stronger, make your joints stronger. You're doing other activities and exercises to create more fitness and more athleticism in the actual body. So you've got all these different training regimens that allow you to perform the 100-yard dash. Well, meditation is the same way. Meditation is you're doing all of these different things in meditation in order to eliminate certain unwholesome qualities and cultivate wholesome qualities. And one of those things is you're focusing on the breath in order to develop singleness of mind so that you eliminate the unwholesome quality of craving, desire, attachment, and you're cultivating mindfulness or awareness of mind. And in meditation, you're going to be eliminating all thoughts. As the thoughts come into the mind, you're cutting them off and bringing it back to the breath, cutting it off and bringing it back to the breath, cutting it off and bringing it back to the breath. 
But then in your daily life, that's not what you're doing. Just like the athlete is doing the 100 yard dash, but they were lifting weights and training. The same thing in meditation. Yeah, you're focused on the breath because you're working to eliminate craving and arise mindfulness. But in daily life, you're not focused on the breath during a particular task. You're just doing the task now with less craving and with more mindfulness and with more concentration. So you're using the less craving and the more mindfulness and the more concentration to perform your task better. But you're not focused on the breath during gardening or doing any particular task. If you're doing something and your mind becomes stressed and you slow down and you close your eyes and you take a few breaths, okay, you can do that. But while you're actually gardening or you're doing other things, you're not going to be sitting there focused on your breath because that's your training. That's not what you're doing in daily life. In daily life, you're running the 100-yard dash. You're not pumping leg irons in order to make your legs stronger. You're running the 100-yard dash. So in daily life, you're doing all your activities, but you're doing it with a higher quality of mind that you've trained in meditation. Thank you, David. There are no more questions at the time. Okay. So let's talk about the different types of meditation that the Buddha shared and what you're actually doing in order to accomplish this particular goals and how you actually perform this meditation. In breathing mindfulness meditation, the primary style of meditation that the Buddha taught, this is to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Because the primary problem that the Buddha discovered that is causing discontentedness this whole path is all about eliminating discontentedness. So that's why breathing mindfulness meditation is the primary form of meditation that he taught. Above all other aspects of meditation, this is the primary form because the primary problem is craving desire attachment. So when the mind is not on the breath, it's going to the past, it's going to the future, it's having thoughts, ideas, and perceptions in meditation it's having craving, desire, attachment. So what we're doing is we're training the mind to let go of all that stuff and just come back to the breath and just come back to the breath and just come back to the breath. We're training the mind to more easily let go of thoughts, ideas, and perceptions. And while we're doing that, we're cultivating mindfulness or awareness of mind, training the mind to reside in the present moment with concentration or singleness of mind. That's part of right concentration and right mindfulness. So what you're doing to train the mind is you're arising this awareness of mind that, ah, the mind is not on the breath. Now I see the mind is over here in the past. Cut that off, let it go and bring it back. So through that process of constantly doing that over multiple sessions, you develop this singleness of mind or this right concentration where you're able to focus and concentrate on the breath for longer and longer and longer periods of time. You're developing your awareness of mind, the thoughts, the ideas, the things that are in the mind. You're not labeling them in meditation. You're just cutting it off and letting it go, whether it's a wholesome thought or it's an unwholesome thought. You're cutting it off, letting it go and coming back to the breath. 
So you're developing this singleness of mind, this right concentration, and you're developing this awareness of the mind or right mindfulness. And because you're cutting it off and letting it go, bringing the mind to the breath, you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment. Okay, now that's your training. Outside of meditation and daily life, you're going to have various thoughts. And those thoughts are really important. It's thoughts about how to improve your life, maybe things that you'd like to do with your life partner, your kids, your family, your friends, maybe career changes. You're not trying to cut off the thoughts and let those go because those are wholesome thoughts. What you're doing in daily life is you're cutting off and letting go of the unwholesome thoughts. In meditation, you're training to let go of all thoughts. You're still going to have thoughts in meditation, but you're making it easier and easier for the mind to let go of them. So that then in daily life, you have this unwholesome thought. You get jealous because somebody at work got an award and you didn't get an award. And you see the jealousy arising in the mind and you know that's destructive. Well, when you observe that, you cut it off and let it go and you arise sympathetic joy, for example, which is being joyful with others' success, even if you didn't contribute to it, which we'll talk about in chapter 14. So in daily life, if you've trained in meditation to let go of all thoughts and train the mind easier and easier to be aware with mindfulness, to have concentration and to let go of thoughts easier and easier, in daily life, when you see unwholesome thoughts arise, what you'll notice over the course of many weeks and many months is it'll get easier and easier to first spot the unwholesome thoughts and then two, to let them go, right? Or to spot the arising discontent feelings and then cut them off and let them go. And this is what the Buddha calls obliterating them at the stump so that when you see these discontent feelings arising, you cut them off at the stump. You let them go easier and easier as you develop your meditation practice. But when you have wholesome thoughts in daily life, yeah, you reflect on that. You think about it. You ponder it. You decide, you know, is this going to be a wise choice for me? Maybe you reach out to your friends and family and discuss the thoughts that you have about wholesome things that you'd like to do in your life. And that's really helpful for you. And in fact, the more that you get this pollution or this unwholesomeness out of the mind, the more wholesome thoughts you will have. This is why enlightened beings tend to be very, very successful in their life because all the unwholesomeness that cluttered the mind in the unenlightened state has been eliminated. It's been removed. So now the mind is only actively working towards wholesome things and it's making wholesome decisions in order to produce wholesome results. So in your daily life, even though you're training in meditation to cut off and let go of everything and come back to the breath, in daily life, you're only cutting off the unwholesome thoughts, the unwholesome feelings. In meditation, you're never going to get to a point where the mind is completely still for your entire period of meditation and it doesn't have any thoughts. You'll never get to that point. You'll experience periods of five minutes, 10 minutes or longer where the mind's still and there's no mental activity. It's completely and utterly peaceful. 
and very blissful and very joyful. But then there'll be a thought that comes into the mind. And one of the thoughts that might come to mind is, oh my goodness, look how peaceful the mind is. That's amazing. The Buddhist teachings lead exactly where he said they would. But see, that's a thought. So you're not working to eliminate thoughts in meditation because it's impossible to eliminate thoughts as long as you're alive. What you're doing is you're working and breathing mindfulness meditation to cultivate this awareness, this mindfulness, to cultivate this concentration where you can stay fixated on the breath for longer and longer periods of time. And whenever the mind's off the breath for any reason, wholesome or unwholesome, you cut it off and let it go, thus making it easier and easier for you to pull the mind back and restrain it. Over time, eventually the mind submits. It eventually submits over a long, long period of time and it won't long, it won't travel so far away and you'll have developed so much awareness of mind as soon as it's off the breath you'll observe it you'll cut it off and bring it right back but it's still going to do that even when the mind's enlightened it's going to do that occasionally in meditation so don't get down on yourself don't feel that you're no good at meditation if while you're meditating that the mind goes off the breath because that happens even for enlightened beings But what you're working to do is have these longer and longer periods of time where the mind is on the breath. So in your first session, you might get two, three, four seconds that it's on the breath and you can feel the mental activity reduce and eliminate and you get this utter peacefulness for just a few seconds. But then the thoughts come back in. Okay, that's just where you are in your first session. And you might notice these little spurts. But then over the course of your training, multiple weeks, multiple months, and even years, that three to four or five seconds starts to expand longer and longer and longer periods of time. But then keep in mind, depending on what's going on in your life and what you're experiencing in life, you could have two, three, four, five weeks or two, three, four, five months of complete peacefulness in your meditation. Everything's going wonderfully. And then depending on what's going on in your life, your meditation gets shaken up a bit and it's not as peaceful as it once was. This is because your meditation practice is impermanent, just like everything else. So it's important that you don't judge one meditation session to the next. So if today you're getting a whole lot of peacefulness and calmness in your meditation and tomorrow it's really busy and the mind's very active, you didn't do anything wrong. You're not bad at meditation. That's just the impermanent nature of your meditation. So that's where you need to just be dedicated and consistent and diligent to long-term meditation where you're not trying to judge one session versus another and you're not trying to compare like this was good, that was bad. And now I've had this week of bad meditation. I'm no good. I'm going to give up and I'm going to stop. That's complacency. Instead, just know that your meditation is going to be rocky and it's going to be impermanent. For as long as you're meditating, you're going to be having this impermanent meditation because of the universal truth of impermanence. Your meditation is not permanent. So just get used to that and don't try to judge your meditation or compare one to the other. Just stay committed and dedicated to it for the long term. That's where you'll really see the benefits.
Do you guys have any questions on breathing mindfulness meditation? How we actually are going to do it? I'm going to actually guide you guys in a session later. But generally, what I've spoken so far, or the reason why we do breathing mindfulness meditation and what we're working to achieve. On that point, David, I was wondering, the Buddha mentioned that breathing mindfulness meditation is necessary in our practice. And we may go through the teachings and study the teachings and feel like the teachings themselves and that knowledge can benefit our lives. But what is it about breathing mindfulness meditation that really makes it a necessary component in our life practice? Sure. So what the goal of this path is, is to eliminate discontentedness and to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. The reason why the unenlightened mind does not have permanent, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy is because it's got these conditions in the mind that are inhibiting it from experiencing peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. Okay? Enlightenment is permanent. The natural laws of existence are permanent, okay? But the unenlightened mental state is not permanent, and all these things in the world around us are impermanent. So there's these conditions in the mind, craving, desire, attachment, anger, hatred, ill will, ignorance, delusion, confusion, or unknowing of true reality, these three poisons or three unwholesome roots that are creating the conditions in which the mind can't experience this permanent peacefulness because a conditioned mind is basing its inner feelings on certain conditions in the world and these impermanent conditions keep shaking up the mind training the mind through meditation you're eliminating the conditions that are causing the mind to be shaken up and you get to ultimately what's called an unconditioned mind that's what enlightenment is. It's, it's an unconditioned mind. It's no longer basing its inner feelings on impermanent conditions because the mind has been unconditioned. It's been cleaned up. It's been purified. These three poisons, and then more specifically the ten fetters, which we'll talk about in chapter three, these three poisons and these ten fetters are polluting the mind and inhibiting it, hindering it creating obstacles for it, that it can't experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. So when we practice breathing mindfulness meditation, we're removing one of the major conditions in the mind that are causing it to be discontent, the craving, desire, attachment. We're removing that from the mind. And we're arising these other two important qualities that are part of this path, which is right mindfulness and right concentration. And by arising those two qualities and eliminating this condition of craving, desire, attachment, that's where the mind becomes unconditioned. That's where the peacefulness and calmness comes from, is that you've removed the pollution. You've removed the conditions that are causing the discontentedness. You're removing these defilements or these taints, these pollutions of mind. And you're arising these wholesome qualities to help the mind perform optimally in the middle. So that's where the real peacefulness, the calmness and contentedness and the joy comes from, is that you're cleaning up the mind, you're purifying it and eradicating all this unwholesomeness and you're arising the wholesome. 
Thank you, David. You were also mentioning not judging our meditation sessions. I was wondering if we do have meditation sessions that constantly move to the thoughts. Is it possible for a meditation session to be unproductive or are these sessions productive as well in some way? All meditation, if you're doing it the way that I describe to you and teach you in this program, it's all beneficial. Because even if you've had three weeks of completely peaceful meditation, and then you start having a few days where, or a few weeks where the mind is busy, you know that. That's the difference, is that when you're in meditation, you're developing mindfulness, you're developing awareness. So if you meditate for 30 minutes, and you get to the end of your meditation and you're like, oh my goodness, this mind is so utterly busy right now. It is just overactive. It's just amazing how busy it is. That means you had mindfulness during your meditation. That means you were cultivating mindfulness. So the goal isn't to get to this ultimate peacefulness in just a couple of meditation sessions and float on a cloud. Instead, you're developing these qualities of mind that are going to help you in life. So if you sit down in meditation or lay or stand or do walking meditation and you just realize, oh my goodness, the mind is just so utterly busy right now. That's a good thing to walk away from your meditation session with because now you can be on guard the whole rest of your day to be aware that, oh, I really need to take my time here with this task because my mind was very active this morning and I need to make sure that I do this very well. Or you might even decide, you know what, my mind is too busy. I'm not going to do my taxes today because this has big glowing ramifications that if I do this document today and I make mistakes, it can have big ramifications for me. So I'm not going to actually focus on my taxes, even though that's something that I'd planned to do. Or if you're in some kind of legal proceeding or you're applying for a new job or something like this and you walk away from meditation with the intention to do those things, but you realize your mind is really busy and you choose not to do them or you do do them and you just do them more carefully, then that's really wise. That's really helpful. That's very insightful. And that was a beneficial meditation practice. And now noticing that your meditation was quite busy and the mind's awareness was all over the place, then maybe you say, you know what, typically I do two meditations a day, but today I'm going to do maybe three or four and really kind of do that for the next few days in order to get the mind back to a better condition. So when you observe that the mind is busy or overactive in meditation, you haven't done anything wrong. You're not a bad person. You're not at fault. You're not horrible at meditation. In fact, you've observed that the mind is busy. What determines whether or not you're going to actually get to enlightenment or not is what you do next, right? It's all about the next decision is like, okay, the mind is busy. So now what do I do next? Do I give up? feel like I'm no good, start degrading myself and feel miserable? Or do I pick myself up and I realize, hey, that's actually helpful. I realize the mind's busy and now that's insight, that's wisdom that I can use to make wiser decisions about my day, about the task that I'm going to be doing, or about increasing my meditation sessions over the next few days. So this is all insightful. So don't look at it as if you've done something wrong 
or you're bad at meditation, but look at it as I just learned something about the mind. It's really busy today or it's really busy this week or this month. And that's because of this impermanence that the mind doesn't like that just happened to me. And I've had all these strings of events that have happened. And now things are getting all shaken up and I need to bring some calmness into this mind and dedicate myself to some more consistent meditation in the coming days and weeks. So it's all about your decisions of what you do next. And that's how you lead the mind through multiple decisions to this enlightened mental state. And I suppose this also applies if we find ourselves having unwholesome thoughts during meditation because we may feel that the last thing that we should be thinking about during meditation are greedy thoughts or angry thoughts, but you would say these two are opportunities for insight essentially. Yes, if you're in meditation and you realize the mind feels guilty or shameful or fearful or you're feeling selfish or greedy or angry or any of these discontent feelings that may arise during meditation, you're still your goal in meditation is to cut that off and let it go and come back to the breath. That's what you're ultimately working to accomplish so that then you can do that same thing in daily life. But after your meditation, when you realize, excuse me, when you realize those thoughts are there, now you can work with them skillfully and do something about them where before you were on this path and you were just going through life and experiencing certain grief and sorrows and despair and misery and you weren't really aware of it and it was just kind of affecting you throughout your day and you didn't have any wisdom of how to work with them skillfully you were just kind of going through your day and knocking down trees and burning up the forest so now when you start focusing on the mind in meditation and you start being aware of all that dust that's been collecting under the carpet for all these years Well, that's actually a good thing because if you start observing that every time you meditate, you keep feeling guilty or shameful, that's where you reach out to your teacher if you don't know the answers of how to work with that skillfully in order to eliminate it and let it go. Because the problem isn't that you've observed the guilt. That's not the problem. That's actually part of the solution. The problem is the craving, desire, attachment, and let's get to that and resolve that and get that out of the mind so that you don't experience this guilt and shame anymore. So if you're being bombarded in your meditation with all kinds of discontentedness or unwholesome thoughts and you're aware of those, that's actually part of the solution because now you're aware of it and you can get help to resolve it. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions for now. Okay. These other three types of meditations, I'm just going to touch on them briefly before we go into talking about meditation and some specifics and then actually doing meditation together. Loving kindness meditation, we're going to do a four-part series on that starting next month, just like we're doing with this. So we're going to dive into that really deeply. But what that meditation is about is it's eliminating that second poison or that second unwholesome root, which is called anger, hatred, and ill will. And there's lesser versions of that, like frustration, irritation, annoyance, and so forth. And what you're doing is you're cultivating loving kindness for all beings. Loving kindness is an active goodwill, a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. That's just exactly the opposite of anger, hatred, and ill will. What you're doing in meditation is you're cultivating this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, and you're transforming the mind, moving in the loving kindness, so you're moving out the anger, hatred, and ill will. 
And then you're practicing loving kindness in daily life in order to transform your relationships, transform your intentions, transform your speech, transform your actions and the way you interact with people. Because everything that you do in the world, every decision that you make has certain consequences. It has certain results. So if we put unwholesomeness like anger, hatred, ill will and all the lesser versions into the world, then that's what's going to come back to us. Our kids, our life partner, our friends, our family, our co-workers are going to treat us the same way. But when you start putting out wholesomeness of this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well and be peaceful over time, this is what will come back to you. So you practice the loving kindness meditation, but then in daily life, through all the other components of the Eightfold Path, things like speech, you practice being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful in your daily life. You can't just do the meditations and then everything gets fixed. You actually do the work in daily life as well, and that's where you transform the mind and you transform the relationships that you have. These other two meditations are designed for specialized use. Not everybody would need these, but for certain people that have really high sexual cravings, there's a meditation to reduce sexual cravings, which is part of the fetter of central desire. And what you're arising during this meditation is the unattractiveness of the body. And there's a specialized way that we do this meditation that I'll talk about when we get to chapter 11 in this program. And then there's a meditation to do what we call realize non-self. If you remember on Sunday, we talked about the universal truth of non-self. And I just kind of introduced it briefly. Well, we're going to be talking about that and getting in a lot more detail as we progress in this program. And then there's a specialized way to use this meditation in order to realize non-self. But you wouldn't be able to do this right off the bat to actually eliminate the self. There's a whole lot of preliminary work that someone needs to do before they actually do this meditation. And this is usually done with the guidance of a teacher when the mind is ready. And when the mind is ready is when you get to what we call the jhanas, which we'll talk about as a later part of this program. So now let's talk about kind of starting and conducting your meditation sessions. No matter which meditation session it is, these things apply. We've already talked briefly about the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. As I mentioned, what our real goal is, is to get to the boss, to get to the mind. And we need to go through the body, the employee to get there. So we'd like to put the body in positions where it's not painful, but it's also not luxurious either, but it's comfortable. And that's where the employee, the body, will be willing to allow us to get access to the mind. But if the body is in this painful position and all the mind is experiencing is pain, 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 that's what the employee is telling the boss. Pain, 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 pain. The boss doesn't want to see us. Or if the body is in this luxurious position, then the mind's going to have a tendency to fall asleep, you know, become lethargic, and we can't go see the boss. So we need to maintain this attentiveness and this alertness. So for example, in the seated position, we relax all the rest of the body, but the upper body, the torso, we keep erect. We keep the muscles erect in, around the spine in order to keep the mind attentive and alert during meditation. So 
when we're working in meditation to train the mind, we're always going to be ensuring that the body is comfortable, not painful, comfortable, not luxurious. And this is what will produce the best results during your meditation. At any point during your meditation, if the body becomes painful or it becomes luxurious, just change your position and get into a position where the body's comfortable. The Buddha teaches as part of his guidance and meditation to set up mindfulness in front of you as part of you practicing meditation. Now, we haven't talked about mindfulness yet, and this is a word that's being used more and more commonly in our conversations. It's being used in different ways in different conversations, but the way that the Buddha used mindfulness is as awareness of mind, being aware of the mind. Today, we tend to use it as being careful. Like, here's a glass of water. Be sure you carry it mindfully, right? This is really just be careful as you walk with the glass of water. What mindfulness means is having awareness of the mind, the thoughts, the ideas, the perceptions, the feelings, right? The decisions that we're making. Being aware is the mind in the past or the future. Is it in the present moment? So what you would like to do prior to meditation is do what the Buddha taught, which is set up mindfulness in front of you. Start bringing your awareness to the mind. So that might include going back to the first one, go to the bathroom, empty out the organs before meditation, right? This is kind of preparing the body, getting it to be comfortable before meditation. Now, okay, the body's comfortable. Now maybe for some people, they might do a little bit of stretching so that they can sit down and be comfortable or lay down and be comfortable. Some people like to do prayer. Not that that's something that the Buddha taught, but if that's something that you do as part of your practice, feel free to do that. Some people like to do chanting, which is something that I also teach in this program about two months from now as a four-part series. I'll teach you Buddhist chanting. These are all things that can start bringing awareness to the mind. What you don't want to do is you don't want to walk in off the street and just plop down and do meditation, right? This isn't creating mindfulness or awareness of mind. This is just coming in and plopping down and doing meditation. Or hurry up and get home so I can do meditation, right? This is going to produce an overactive mind. You want to take your time, relax. You know, maybe you take off your shoes. Maybe you get comfortable, do a little stretch, get your cushion out and you start to meditate or if you have a meditation bench or you just sit flat on the floor or whatever it is you just sit on the floor or you lie or you stand or you do your walking but you do it with awareness you start bringing awareness this inner awareness to the mind there's certain time frequency and schedule of meditation that you might be considering like what should i be doing in terms of time frequency or schedule the buddha during his lifetime he did three meditations a day he did morning midday and evening this absolutely produces the best results but you may not be able to do that right off the bat and that's okay so if you just start with once a day and that's where you are that's fine. You can do that. If you're able to do twice a day, wonderful. If you can get to three times a day, outstanding. You're going to see more benefits because you're going to accumulate more and more benefits if you do more frequency each day. So you start wherever you feel best. 
the goal would be that you build up your practice to two or three times per day. That would be the goal. But you start wherever you can make space in your life. And if that's once a day and you do that for a few weeks and then slowly you can gradually work in twice a day, great. And then you do that for a while and then gradually you might be able to work in three times a day, outstanding. What I suggest is for a schedule that you don't actually have a certain schedule. If you try to schedule that every morning at 8 a.m. and every evening at 8 p.m. I'm gonna do meditation, that's craving permanence. There's no way that you're gonna be able to do that. Now you might put a marker in the mind and you might think, okay, that's kind of generally when I'm going to meditate, but don't be fixated on that because some days it's gonna be a little bit earlier, some days it's gonna be a little bit later. Some days something's gonna happen because of impermanence and you're not gonna be able to do it at all in the morning. And that's okay. Just be sure to do your meditation at your next available time. So don't put this pressure on yourself to have this rigid schedule of meditation. What I like to do is I like to have kind of anchor points. When I wake up in the morning, I know that I wake up, I go to the bathroom, empty the organs, right into meditation. And that's generally the way that I've been able to create a lifestyle to be able to do that. But occasionally there are situations that arise where I can't do that. And I need to take my son to school or there's something else that's happened that I'm not able to meditate first thing in the morning. And that's okay. I just find the next available time to meditate. And then in the evening, I meditate as well. But be sure that you don't wait for the mind to get tired and then you meditate. And now I go to sleep because now the mind is tired. It's not ready to do the work. Meditation is a lot of work. And you would like to be sure that the mind's ready and prepared to do that work. So if you wait until evening when the mind is actually tired and then you try to meditate, it's not going to want to do the work. So if you typically go to bed around a certain time and you kind of feel tiredness coming on, you know, 10 or 15 minutes before bedtime, you would like to start your meditation well before that where the mind is still attentive and alert so you can get to this boss while it's attentive and alert. You don't want to go see the boss when they're tired. They don't want to talk to you. They're not going to make any good decisions. Good things aren't going to happen when the boss is tired. So you would like to go see the boss when the boss still has some energy. So be sure that you kind of realize that you're not waiting until you're tired and then meditating. You actually would like to bump that up about 30 minutes or an hour before the mind gets tired and meditate at that point. That's where the mind is still active and you can get your work done. In terms of the amount of time that you meditate, the ideal would be 30 minutes or more per session. But this is usually something that you need to build up to. Sometimes people start out with one session a day, five or 10 minutes, and that's all they can do. And that's kind of what they feel comfortable with. But then gradually, over a couple of weeks, they start increasing that to 15 or 20 minutes, or then eventually 30 minutes once a day. And then once they kind of get that well-rooted, they're feeling comfortable with that, they've made some space in their life, they're starting to see the benefits of this style of meditation, then they increase it to twice a day, right? So you gradually build this up. You're not gonna be able to snap the fingers and implement everything that I share with you in today's class or in this program. So what I'm sharing with you is what the ideal is two to three times a day for 30 minutes or more per session. 
But then know that you need to gradually build up to that. And it's going to take you time to do that. Maybe even multiple months or years to build up to that. But just keep working on the goal to get closer and closer to that because that's what's going to produce the best results. If at any point during meditation you're noticing sleepiness during meditation, you can change positions like we talked about and that will keep the mind attentive and alert. You can move to walking or standing or something like that. But also, it's not uncommon when someone first starts meditating that the mind is so heavily defiled and so heavily polluted that they become utterly tired and sleepy during meditation. As the mind is doing this work that it doesn't really want to do, the mind doesn't want to really do this work. It wants to be complacent, right? So when you start implementing this new program and you start applying some discipline to the mind, it's like a wild animal. It doesn't want to be trained. It wants to go frolic in the forest, right? It wants to go play around in the forest. So the mind will tend to become sleepy. And that's kind of common as you're building up your meditation practice for a few months. And what you have to do is you have to look at your life and see if you're getting enough rest. And maybe you just need to get some rest. There are plenty of times where I sat down intending to meditate, planning to meditate for 30 minutes, an hour or more, and within the first 10 or 15 minutes, utterly sleepy and tired. And I just went to sleep because that's what the mind needed in that present moment. Instead of forcing yourself to sit there and fight through the sleepiness for 30 minutes or so, you might just need to go to sleep because you're not getting enough rest. And maybe you got 5, 10, 15 minutes in. Okay, that's great. Even though you intended to do more, don't hold on to that decision or else it's going to cause discontentedness. You'd like to make the best decision in the present moment, and sometimes that's just go to sleep, or sometimes it's change your meditation position. So keep those things in mind as the mind becomes sleepy during meditation. And once again, you haven't done anything wrong if that happens. That's very common and very normal. If you notice any kind of physical sensations during meditation, like maybe tickling or itch or any kind of physical sensations in the body, this is normal. And if your mind is becoming aware of those physical sensations, that's actually a very good thing. That relates to what we call the four foundations of mindfulness, which we're going to talk about later in this program. So if you start noticing the physical sensations, that's helpful. But what I would encourage you to do is not necessarily itch them right away. Because what you would like to do is you'd like to observe how these physical sensations are impermanent, that they will arise, they will change, and then they will fade away. And if you can maintain your focus with the mind on the breath during meditation, during these physical sensations, this can actually be very good training for the mind. That as you feel this little itch, you don't just itch it right away. That you sit there, you can be disciplined, and you can train the mind to focus on the breath, cut off that thought of that itch or any kind of other sensation that's happening in the physical body. Aside from pain, if you notice pain, you'd like to take corrective action. But if it's just a little tickling sensation or a little itch or something, see if you can go for longer and longer and longer periods of time, cut off those thoughts and bring it back to the breath. This can be very good training for the mind. 
As you're meditating, if you notice any kind of visual stimulation during meditation, this is also very normal. The mind is basically like this bound up ball of twine. And you've got all these emotions, all these experiences, all these different things that have happened to you in life that have just been wound up in this ball of string, kind of like putting all the dust under the carpet. And with this bound up ball of string, what you're doing in meditation is you're slowly unraveling and untangling the mind. And as you do, in these various situations start arising in the mind, you might notice visual stimulation during your meditation. This is completely normal. It's impermanent. It won't happen always. You might have bright white lights. You might have blue lights, green lights, red lights. You might have different visualizations from this life or past lives that come into the mind. This is all completely normal. Just pay it no attention and continue to focus on the breath. One of the other things that's happening during meditation is you're actually focused on the breath, you're training the mind, but there's research that shows that there's physical changes that are happening to the brain. These changes as they occur, just like we know enlightenment is permanent, the scientists tell us that the changes to the brain are also permanent. So visualization and what you see in the eyes is very connected to the brain. So as you're meditating, during meditation, if you're noticing visual stimulation, this can be just kind of aspects of the brain that are slowly changing and moving to better health and better improvement. So this is completely normal. You're not special. You don't have to go figure out what does it mean when I see white lights or what does it mean when I see red lights or you know, what, it, what should I be concerned about or what should I be worried about? Nothing whatsoever. It's just completely normal. It'll pass. Just keep focused on the breath and be unaffected by any visual stimulation during meditation. And then lastly, on this particular topic is during meditation, it's sometimes common to meditate with certain external stimulus. Someone might decide to have music or a candle or some beads or incense or something like this as they're meditating. These things are maybe what you're doing now or maybe what you've heard other people do, but they're actually not required as part of meditation. In fact, they can actually hinder the meditation. If the mind becomes attached or fixated to these things, that's just the craving desire attachment, the clinging that the mind's holding on, that it's only when I light this sage scented candle that I feel comfortable meditating. And now the mind is hooked to this sage candle. So now when you travel around and when you go other places or when you can no longer buy that sage candle because it's impermanent, what happens to your meditation practice? If you've trained the mind to be fixated and attached to this sage candle for a year or two or three, and now it's fixated on this, now what happens when impermanence comes along and you can't meditate because there's no sage candle? You would like to avoid this. You would like to eliminate all these external stimulants. So if you currently have things like music, candles, incense, beads, any of these kind of things, even meditation cushions and things like this, you should introduce some impermanence into your meditation practice to make sure the mind doesn't get fixated and hooked onto these things. So you might need to do that gradually because the mind doesn't typically like change 
or I should say the unenlightened mind doesn't typically like change. So you might need to kind of do one session with music, two sessions without it. One session with music, two sessions without. And then one session with it, three or four without. One session with it, three, four, five without. And then gradually move the mind away from where you don't need any music and you don't need any incense. You don't need any candles. You don't need any beads. And even like I mentioned, kind of switch around meditation cushions and change different positions as well. Once you get your meditation practice established, you would like to kind of mix it up a bit to make sure your mind doesn't get attached to any one particular thing. You should only need three things during meditation, the body, the mind, and the breath. You'll have these three things with you everywhere for the rest of this life. You'll have this body, you'll have this mind, and you'll have this breath. So if you can train to meditate with just those three things, and that's your consistent practice, whether you're at home, you're at a friend's house, you're in the hospital, you're on holiday in Thailand, you're on holiday in the Bahamas, whatever you decide to do, wherever you decide to go, if you're in the mountains of the Himalayas, you can actually meditate. You don't need your sage candle in the mountains of Himalayas because that would be one more added thing that you have to carry in your backpack in order to meditate. And you're going to need to meditate consistently every day over the course of your life. And of course, you're going to miss days here and there because of impermanence. But you would like to get to the point where you don't need anything at all, that everything you need is already with you. The body, the mind, and the breath. It's already there. It's built in. So train the mind to gradually move to the point where that's all you need. That way you can meditate everywhere and anywhere. And that would be a meditation practice that's not attached or not craving or not desiring any particular thing during meditation. And now the mind is liberated from having to be attached to any particular things during meditation. Let's see what questions you guys have here. Remember, just put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or raise your hand electronically to get help. We have a question coming from YouTube, from IA. I sometimes feel sleepy during meditation, so I plan on sleeping, but end up watching a show and feel like I can stay up for longer. Is this a sign that the mind is confused? Yeah, the mind doesn't want to submit to the training. The mind isn't interested in being tamed, so it's going to look for excuses of why it can't do what it is that you're interested in doing. So this is where you need to practice that enlightenment factor of energy that we've talked about, and I know IA has joined us in other classes as well, where you have enthusiasm, you have motivation, you have this energy, this encouragement, where you're actively dedicated, diligent in your practice. Don't allow the mind to slack off and be complacent like that. You have to be the one that makes it do what it is you want to do. Don't allow the mind to control you. You're controlling the mind. I was wondering, David, in meditation, is there an element of control in which we look to control the breath or control the thoughts, or are we simply observing? What you're doing is you're developing the breath so that it's just a natural inhale and an exhale, just a nice gradual inhale and exhale, just a nice natural full breath, and you're experiencing the full breath. So you're not really controlling it per se. You're just allowing it to happen naturally, just a natural full cycle of the breath, 
and a full exhale of the breath. And you're fixating on the breath itself. You're not trying to observe the thoughts. You're not trying to label the thoughts. You're not trying to figure out where the thoughts are coming from. You're just literally like a laser light focus on the breath. But there's going to be times where you notice with mindfulness, ah, the mind's not on the breath. Silly mind, cut that off, let it go and come back to the breath. Okay, now you're focused on the breath. Okay, there's the breath. Breathing in, breathing out. Okay, that's good. Now you're focused on that. And then you notice at some point, silly mind is off the breath again. Cut that off and let it go and bring it back. So you're not observing the thoughts. You're not trying to observe the thoughts. You're not trying to label the thoughts, figure out where they're coming from. You're just noticing whenever the mind's off the breath, cut it off and let it go and bring it back. Because then in daily life, if you notice anger arise, you can cut it off, let it go and bring it back to the middle. Or you're noticing boredom or loneliness, you can cut it off and bring it back. Or you're noticing guilt, shame, or fears, you can cut it off and bring it back. Or you're noticing this conditioned excitement arise in the mind, you can cut it off, bring it back. But if you don't train that way in meditation, you won't be able to do that. So you're not trying to observe anything, you're just staying fixated on the breath and just observe the breath. And wherever you notice, at whatever point that it's not on the breath, cut it off and let it go and come back to the breath. We have a question from Rick on Steam. Although we are not working toward breath control, is it helpful to increase or decrease the frequency of breaths when one of the hindrances, such as sleepiness, are very strong? I usually try to maintain a nice, consistent breath throughout the meditation. If there's sleepiness, I will just change positions because that's what will resolve the sleepiness. I've never tried to change the breath or control the breath to combat sleepiness, for example. I usually use the body position for that. So I usually just try to take a nice, full, deep inhale through the nose, gradually experiencing the full breath, observing the full breath, and then gradually exhale. And when you first start, you might notice that the breath is kind of short or more labor intensive. And you would like to get to the point where your breath is so easy and so natural, you almost don't even have to pay attention to it. You are because you're in meditation, but it just is happening so naturally and so easily, so fluid that you're not trying to control because the mind's going to try to control things externally. This is one of the problems with the unenlightened mind is because of its craving, desire, attachment, and its lack of wisdom about the natural laws of existence, the unenlightened mind thinks if I control this world and I get everybody doing the things that I want them to do, then I will be peaceful. And the mind tries to control this external world and thinking that's what it's going to take to get to peacefulness. But in reality, you got to control this inner world, this inner mind. So rather than try to control the breath, I encourage students to work on it, to develop it naturally and gradually so that it becomes effortless and you're not trying to control it because then this will relate to you just focusing in on the mind and not trying to control any external things and instead work on controlling the mind so that then the breath can just be natural. Thank you, David. Those are all the questions at this time. Okay. So the last thing that I would like to share with you guys in terms of talking before we actually do a meditation session together is to just never, ever, ever give up on your meditation practice. 
because oftentimes what brings people to this path is that the mind is discontent. It's sad, it's angry, it's frustrated, it's feeling guilty, it's feeling shameful, it's feeling fearful. There's boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, all these other discontent feelings. And that's what brings people to the path. And then once they start practicing on the path and they start observing these feelings in the mind, it kind of can almost become more intense sometimes. And then somebody might decide to give up. But giving up means that you're relegating yourself back to those discontent feelings for the rest of your life. Because this is the escape. This is the escape hatch out of the discontentedness. This is the door leading out of discontentedness. So if you go up to the door and the door feels hot or you don't like the color of the door or you don't like the doorknob, the problem isn't the door. You still need to walk through the door. The problem is the mind doesn't like what it's experiencing. So rather than think that the door is the problem and not walk through the door, instead just grab a hold of it and walk through. So when you're on this path and you realize that there's guilt, shame, and fear, it's not that there's anything wrong with meditation. It's not that there's anything wrong with you. It's just that the mind is untrained. And those same feelings that brought you to the path, don't let those be the feelings that turn you away from the path and decide that you don't want to go forward. Instead, just never give up and think about the path to enlightenment as you're walking up a mountain. And when you first start walking at the bottom of the mountain in midway, it can be pretty intense and it can be quite challenging. But that's not the time to give up. You would like to get to the top of the mountain and see the view in the fresh air. And this mountain with enlightenment, once you get up there, it's permanent. You don't ever have to leave. How many times have you ever maybe hiked up a mountain, saw the beautiful view and breathed the fresh air and said, gosh, I could just stay here forever. But yet you still have to walk back down the mountain. When you walk up this mountain to enlightenment, it's a permanent mental state. But yeah, it's quite challenging on the way up. And you might have to sit down. You might have to rest your legs. You might have to rest your feet. You might have to reach out to your teacher or other members of the community and say, hey, I need some help here. And that's completely normal. When you're standing at the bottom of the mountain, the mountain looks pretty tall. And as you're walking up the mountain, it can be kind of a struggle as you're first getting started. But if you just focus on one step at a time, don't look at the top of the mountain when you're at the bottom. Just focus on one step at a time. So now, if you've never meditated before, then just meditate for five or 10 minutes once a day for the next week. And that's what you decide to do. Even though you know the goal is two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more, that's the top of the mountain. So just break it down once a day for five or 10 minutes. Excellent. Did that for a week. Now increase that 15, 20 minutes a session once a day. Great. You do that. So increase that, right? Every week, increase it a little bit more. And that's how you just put one foot in front of the other and walk up this mountain slowly but surely. And you reach out wherever you need guidance and you need help, right? Your teacher is like your tour guide on this path up the mountain. You have to do the work, but you've got a tour guide to help you that's been up and down this mountain. So you've got somebody that can help you and that's where you reach out and get help. And remember the Buddha's words that we started with, meditate monks, or the other way you can think of this is meditate students, 
Do not be complacent, lest you will regret it later. This is my instruction to you. So with that, let's go into some meditation and actually do some meditation together. So what I'd like to do is invite all of you to get into meditation position. Typically when you're first learning, that's going to be the seated position. For me, sitting here at the computer, I'm, I'm on this chair. And that's completely fine if you're in a chair. You can meditate all the time in a chair if you'd like. So if you're in a chair, you would like your lower body to be comfortable. Your feet should probably be flat on the floor or crossed at the ankles. Either way, it's not about everybody doing it exactly the same. There's some flexibility here. So do whatever you feel comfortable with, either flat on the floor or crossed at the ankles with your lower body comfortable. Your hands and arms should be in your lap. The Buddha put his right hand on top of his left, and then he put his thumbs together, and he put that in his lap. If that's comfortable for you, use it. For me, it's comfortable, so I use it. But if that wasn't comfortable, I wouldn't use it, even though the Buddha did it. Not everybody's going to meditate the same way as the Buddha, because that would be permanence. And we know the universal truth of impermanence. So some other options that you can use and that plenty of people use is you can put your palms on your thighs. You can put your palms on your knees. If you're in a chair, you could put your arms on the armrest of the chair. Either way, your lower body and your hands and arms should just be comfortable, relaxed, almost like they don't even exist. The upper body should be erect. So around the spine, you would like it to be nice and erect. You don't want it to be real rigid and stiff, but you don't want to be slouched and like this either, right? You would like to be erect. This is what's going to maintain the attentiveness, the alertness of the mind. This is how you're going to maintain the attention of the boss while you're meditating. So keeping that upper body erect is really important. Next, with the lower body, the hands and the arms in position, and the upper body erect, attentive and alert mind, now you close the eyes and you start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Breathe in. in out your breath might not match up to the guidance that i'm giving and that's okay i'm just here as a guide this is your work your practice so when i say breathe in that's just a reminder for you that wherever you get to the next breath remember to breathe in And then remember to breathe out through the nose. Nice, gradual breath. Don't try to control the breath. It should just be a nice, natural breath. Breathing in. in out breathing in
and out. Continuing to breathe in and out. Start fixating the mind on the breath. Bring the awareness of the mind to the sound of the breath entering the nose or the sensation of air moving over the skin into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath. Breathing in, full awareness of the breath. And gradually breathe out through the nose. Continuing to focus the mind on the breath. Breathe in. And out. Now, as the mind wanders off the breath, Wherever you notice that, cut it off, let it go. Bring the mind back to the breath. You haven't done anything wrong. You're not bad at meditation. That's just the craving, desire, attachment. The mind wants to be in the past or the future. Wants to have thoughts, ideas, perceptions. It's a wild animal. It doesn't want to be trained. So wherever you notice that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. In, out. Breathing in Continuing to focus on the breath Breathing out Now I'm going to be quiet for a bit Because I'm not even interested in the mind Holding on to the sound of this voice You'll need to continue to focus on the breath, the present moment. Wherever you notice that the mind is not on the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Nice, natural inhale through the nose experiencing the full breath, calming the mind, focused on the breath. Then exhale, focused only on the breath, 
a nice natural, calm, steady breath. Breathing in. And out. Breathing in and out. Focus on the breath doing this work.
Continue to breathe in through the nose. And out through the nose. Whenever the mind is not on the breath, cut that off, let it go. Come back to the breath. Okay, if you guys would like to slowly start coming out of meditation, just kind of ease the mind out. We're going to incorporate some chanting next session. I won't actually teach you guys how to do chanting for about another two months, but I'll do some chanting to kind of ease us into meditation and ease us out. But for today, just kind of ease yourself out of meditation. And then later, if you'd like to learn the chanting, you'll have that to kind of ease you in and ease you back out of meditation. So let's open up to any questions that you guys might have now that you experienced a little bit of breathing mindfulness meditation. You can put your question into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically and we'll answer any questions that you guys have. Hi, David. This may be the first time that some of us have learned a meditation or practiced it. And I was wondering, is it recommended that if this is our first time that we can now begin our meditation practice? Exactly. From this point, you can start focusing on meditating each day. And the goal would be two to three times a day for 30 minutes or more. But again, you'll have to probably slowly build up to that. So if you can fit once a day in your schedule, go for it. If you can fit twice a day, go for it. If you can fit three times a day, go for it. If all you have is 
five or ten minutes that you feel like you can do and that's what you end up doing great or if you can do longer then do longer but gradually build up your meditation and one thing that's really important is that you don't use an alarm during your meditation if you can certain times during the day like if you're on your way to work and you're meditating prior to work you might need to use your alarm just to be sure you don't sit there and meditate for three hours and you miss work but during those times maybe in the evening or on the weekend days where you don't have to work if you can not use an alarm that's best because if you try to set an alarm then either you're going to fall short of that and you're going to feel guilty that you did or you're going to be deep in meditation experiencing all kinds of benefits and then the alarm's going to go off when you could have gotten so much more benefits so the best thing to do is where possible set the alarm to the side don't ever use an alarm but as you're building up your practice and you're curious about how much time you've been meditating just look at a clock before you start okay five o'clock and now you meditate and then after you're done just happen to look at the clock again oh 5 15 15 minutes that's better than the last few sessions so i suggest you kind of look at the clock maybe once a week and just kind of see where you're at in your meditation so you know if you need to continue to expand it or you know kind of where you're at with your meditation even now today i will kind of occasionally maybe once a week once every two or three weeks i'll look at a clock and see how long i'm meditating for each session and that can be helpful but if you have an alarm you'll either like i said fall short and feel guilty or the alarm will go off when you could have got more benefits or another thing that can happen is you can be sitting in meditation having set your alarm for say 20 minutes and your mind is just going to be is it time yet is it time yet is it time yet is it 20 minutes yet is it 20 minutes yet this is the craving this is the mind holding on and you would like to eliminate that so if you eliminate the alarm you eliminate that aspect of the mind wanting to crave a certain time that's the same reason why we eliminate music or candles or incense or beads or all these special things like this because the mind is just holding on to it and we're trying to strip things down to get to the bare bones body mind and breath for two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more and then you build up to that gradually thank you for your guidance david that's all the questions we have for today okay so next class on wednesday doing the second part of this series we're going to just have a brief little overview of some of the things we discussed today and then we're going to go right into meditating and there'll be a long section at the end of class for any questions because between now and wednesday you will have a chance to meditate at least seven times or more depending on how many sessions you do per day so you may have questions and you can always ask questions as they come up through the week and all those different methods that I've discussed in the past. But we'll set aside a lot of time each meditation session, each class, though it's always going to be time where you can ask questions. And that's your time to bring things up that are happening in your meditation and you're curious to get guidance so you can do that during class. So next 
session, we will dive into some more details, kind of a little bit of an overview of what we discussed today, but then we're going to be spending longer and longer periods of time each class session elongating our meditation longer and longer and longer and getting to the point where there's ability for you to ask questions. And you'll hear me adding in some chanting as well. And then on Sunday this week, we're going to be doing the second part of our three-part series on the Eightfold Path. We're going to be covering that section of the Eightfold Path called Moral Conduct, which is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. This is going to help you see the Buddha's guidance on how the best ways to speak in ways that won't cause harm, the best way to use our bodies, not causing harm through our bodily actions, and also through our livelihood or the way that we sustain ourselves in the world is ensuring that we're not causing harm to any beings through our moral conduct. Because any harm that we cause in our moral conduct is just going to come back to us. And making wise decisions based on this guidance of the Buddha, you having your own free will to make any decisions you like in the world, but having this guidance from the Buddha will help you to see the best ways to kind of conduct yourself from a moral conduct standpoint, and then you get to decide how you progress in your life. And as you learn and practice what the Buddha teaches, you'll see that your relationships will just blossom and improve. So I'll see you either this Sunday or Wednesday. And remember, if you miss any classes, there's always the replays in Facebook, YouTube, or on our podcast. So until next time, have a lovely rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.